again, everyone. Yes, Exodus 20, we've just read. What's going on? Turn to Daniel 3, and I'll explain as we go. And yes, Andrew, the plants seem to be growing. I'm bringing more and more of these plants from home to make it really lush and lovely in here. We do love the plants. All right, I'm going to pray because we need to get stuck into what God has to say to us today. So would you please pray with me? Father God, thank you that you are the one true living and reigning, the eternal God. Thank you that there is no one beside you. We ask that you help us to love you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength. We ask that you help us to worship you and you alone, which means that we don't bow down to anything else, that we don't submit ourselves to anything else as our ultimate authority and guide, that our ultimate control and purpose, our ultimate identity shaper. Instead, we continue to love and to serve and to follow after you. Please help us to look at Daniel 3 together, to wrestle with what these, well, this story that for many of us is so common, wrestle with what it really means that we can then put it into practice for ourselves and bring praise and glory to your name. And we pray this in the powerful name of the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Fire. I actually, we had a fire pit last night, actually. We were sitting at the front on our driveway, beautiful fire going, and I only, and Cassie's point about the smoke getting everywhere, it's so true, isn't it? This morning, I actually put my mask on to come up and into here, and I'd had it in my pocket last night, and it even just was just filled with smoke. We're going to think a bit more about that later, because smoke and fire, it does, it seems to consume. But you know the other thing I've noticed about fire, and it was very interesting watching a one-year-old want to be a part of the fire, is the allure of fire. It's inviting, isn't it? We like to come around and warm ourselves, but also you get too close or you see something too big when it comes to a fire, it is frightening. Reuben definitely discovered that as he got close, but the heat and it's alluring. So too is gold, isn't it? Gold has this allure and is also all-consuming for people too. We go to the Olympics to win gold medals. We say that people are on fire. Gold and fire have this, this inviting and alluring, this wooing, this captivation. And it then is fitting in a way that we see a massive golden idol built. An alluring, wooing, captivating thing built by Nebuchadnezzar. It's fitting because the idols of our day are also alluring, all-consuming, tempting. Today we're going to have to wrestle with the reality that, yes, we don't bow down, most of us in Western culture, to actual physical statues, but we are a people who are littered with the temptation of towers, of idols. We are a people who are on trial in the fire because there is so much pressure around us to bow down to other things. And Daniel 3 helps us to wrestle with that. Daniel 3 gives us an example of how it is you can stand in the face of that. If you've been with us the last couple of weeks, we have been going through Daniel and it's been a great book. I'm loving this book. Daniel 1 sort of set us up with the context and I want to return to make sure that we remind ourselves exactly where we are when it comes to Daniel. We're in Babylon, Shinar, in exile way out of their normal context, in a foreign land with foreign gods being trained. These people were being trained, Daniel and his three mates were being trained in the ways of Babylonia. 
They were being encultured. And if you recall back to Daniel chapter 1, I was talking about how it is sometimes like being around a fire. That when you don't realise it, you're all of a sudden smoky and you are just like that space. That it infiltrates you, that it can force you to conform. We also live in an exile as Christians. We are not in our true home. We live in a place where there are all sorts of pulls and pressures And so this book really helps us to wrestle with that. And I want us to come back to that today as we think about the fact that we have this great temptation of the tower, that idolatry is on view, that there is a trial set within a fire, that faithfulness will be needed in this. But then there is a triumphant God that comes through and He rescues, He saves, and He does it completely. This is a wonderful, wonderful story. And I hope that as we journey through it, it might really encourage us today. And then when we get to share in a moment in communion, that together we might be able to remember the triumph of our great God. So let's check it out. Because restless Nebuchadnezzar, he seemingly was a bit reassured last week when he was told that he was the golden head. And he's thinking, gold, gold, gold. I just stole a heap of gold too from those, all those nations that I just completely obliterated. I've got all this gold from their temples. He's got more gold than Ariane Titmus does at the moment. And so he thinks to himself, maybe I'm going to build something with that. So what does he do? Verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 60 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Gold, gold, what is it with gold? Gold medals, golden calves, golden teeth, golden statues. Well, gold's the king of all metals, isn't it? It is the most precious and valuable. That's why the king wears a golden crown. Now, this particular statue is most likely plated. And if you're an engineer and you hear 60 cubits by 6 cubits, you're thinking, how does that thing end up being looking like a statue? Because it's pretty slender and very, very tall. To put into perspective, 60 cubits is almost 28 metres. 6 cubits then is about 2.8 metres. And so it was quite slender. But I, I found it really helpful thinking about Christ the Redeemer. So Christ the Redeemer, that statue sits at about 30 metres high. So this statue, Nebuchadnezzar's statue, would have been about that size. That is huge, isn't it? Yes, slender, but this is a very, very, very big, picture it, this huge, shining, gold-plated image. And as we read, as we look, we see that Nebuchadnezzar set this thing up, and he set something up that the Jews would never have seen in their lives. This is impressive. This is grand. This is something that you want to almost just bow down to because of the scale of this thing. But many, many times you'll read, if you read the whole story in one sitting, I encourage you to do that, set up. Nine times I think I count, and maybe you want to count it and see how many times you find it. But it's the same word if you look back into chapter 2, verse 21, where God... where where Daniel was talking about how it is or who it is that God is and what it is that he does and that he is the one who establishes thrones and seasons. He is the one that establishes things. It's the same word. And so here's Nebuchadnezzar. He's the one that's trying to set these things up. He does seem to have been a little bit reassured about his reign and his rule and the gods that it is that he worships. And so what he does is in verses 2 to 3, he pulls together all the head honchos and he's preparing for quite the spectacle as he dedicates this image that he had set up. And so they're all standing before it. And then the announcement goes out in verses 4 to 6. You know, the nations and the peoples of every language, every tongue, 
all of you are commanded to come here and do exactly what it is that Nebuchadnezzar tells you to do. At the sound of all these incredible instruments, what do you do? You bow down. You bow down before this statue. And in verse 7, what do we get? Obedience. Verse 7. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the zither, the lyre, the harp, and all kinds of music, you might want to make a positive practice of learning the zither this week, all the nations and peoples of every tongue fell down and worshipped the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. What's pictured here? It is mass worship of the God of Nebuchadnezzar. This is religious conformity, right? This is unification of the nation in order, mass, mass conformity. But note, there is consequences, there is a price for non-conformity. And, and people have wrestled with, is this a statue of Nebuchadnezzar himself? Is it just a statue of one of the gods that he has? We're not exactly quite sure, but the point is the same. And it seems when you look forward, Nebuchadnezzar takes this very, very personally because he reacts very soon when some don't bow down in a furious way. See, he set it up and you will bow down to it. And there is a price for non-conformity. What was the price? Verse 6, whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. There's pressure, isn't there? Quite a lot of pressure to conform, which creates a problem if you are a Jew. It creates a big problem if you are a Jew. See, contextually, if you think of, if you're a Jew, you know a thing or two about idols. You know a thing or two about statues and towers and obelisks, objects that you are not meant to bow down to. You know very well you are not to bow down to those things. You are not to worship those things. Why? Well, because of what Philippa read earlier. At the very beginning of the Ten Commandments, it is so clear, you are to have one God and one God only, no other gods before me, which means you shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything and you shall not bow down to it. It was one of the most clear statements and yet the Jews had issue with this through and through. Idolatry had constantly been this pressure and pull when they went into the foreign lands that they were then to capture in Cana, they struggled with this. Now, we're going to need to unpack this because living in a foreign land, just like for the Jews, it can be difficult. It creates pressure. It creates a problem. But they're not just in a foreign land that they're going to go in and take and make as their own. They're in exile. They're on somebody else's turf where it's their way and it goes. This is next level. And if you recall back to Daniel chapter 1, I was suggesting we live in exile. We ourselves have this context just like Babylon. And so we need to wrestle with this because there is pressure in exile. Internally, when we think, mm, is it going to be easier just to conform? And from outside, as the, the, the collective starts to put pressure upon what it is that we should be doing, there is the temptation of the tower. There is idolatry that starts to tempt. You think about it, the Tower of Babel, where was it built? Remember that tower that drew together all of humanity to try to rally and do it their own way? Built on the plain of Shinar. And the tower of Nebuchadnezzar? Built in the land of Shinar on the plain of Jura. Idolatry is on view. And we could unpack this for the next week. And if you want to tune in and these guys are happy to stick around, what do you reckon? No. 
My point is we're just going to skim it. You're going to have to keep wrestling with this yourself. Because there is an allure. There is something about gold. There is something about what this promises, what idolatry promises to us. There is something about the golden calf, the golden tower. Now, it all probably seems a little bit ridiculous to us at times. And even the scriptures point that out. If you go to Isaiah 41 through to 47, it just shows how ludicrous it is to bow down to an object like this. But often our more modern, seemingly more enlightened, arrogant position when it comes to how it is that others would bow down to objects, that seems ridiculous. We fail to see just as, well, just how guilty we are as well. Because the human heart is brilliant at building monuments and plating them with gold to help us shape our identity and our meaning and our purpose, right? Because what is an idol at the end of the day? What was an idol? What were they using it for? It was simply a representation of a God, a tangible expression set up and created by human hands so that they could access it and use it for their benefit. A God. And the gods too were something that was just created from creation, might have been the sun, the moon, the stars, the trees, the rivers. They all had these different sorts of gods. They controlled different areas of their lives so that you'd have sex gods and fertility gods and harvest gods and family gods and rock gods. Not quite rock gods, but you had all these different sorts of gods that were made by humans for humans to give them confidence, to give them comfort, to give them control, to help them shape their identity, their meaning and their purpose. We're not so far from this, are we? We have towers. Now, it's more subtle than this massive 28-metre gold-plated thing, but it sits deep and has big impact on our whole lives, right? They're there. Because when you melt them all down, when you pull back the curtain from these idols, when you waft away the incense that's burning and, and chip away at the stone, you remove the mask behind every single idol. You know what's sitting there? The self. A human Every false God we have is really in order to praise and worship ourselves, that we might find our own identity and meaning and purpose. So how do we find them? How do we find our idols? How do we unpack them? Because we can't walk out to the ridgeway and be like, there it is, better tear that thing down. But there are towers, right? What is towering in your life? What is it that you that takes your imagination at all times, or most of the time, takes your attention, your finances and your frustrations, your joys and your pains, all of your emotions that seem to keep pouring into this thing. What is plated in gold, you could say? What is your ultimate thing? They are often good things, gods. Good things that have just been made ultimate and God things not sitting in their right place. And they start to then shape our identity, our meaning and our purpose. They are what we go to for confidence and comfort and control, right? See, Neb, Neb didn't care about his tower, nor did the people, really. He wanted the confidence. He wanted the comfort. He wanted the control. It really was ending up being about him, right? What are the towers in your life? What are lures like gold? And I was going to try and unpack specifically for the Shire because obviously, we, we have towers here. I don't feel like I've lived here long enough to really start to, to niggle in on that. And I would love for you to tease that out in your connect groups, to work through what do you think it is for us? Not just for the community, for us, even in the church. 
But the big ones do point back to identity, meaning and purpose, don't they? And I'm just generally speaking, it's like stuff, materialism, social stuff, relationships, social capital. And then there's sex and success. And so our homes and our gadgets and the different things that we gather, our careers and work, promotion, the position that we're in, the success that we have, be it sporting or academic or, or social success that we just seem to work and fit, or it might be our image and identity, at least the one we're presenting for all to see, so that it does make us feel more secure. And with social media, with phones, with those instant hits of self-assuring access, that starts to define, doesn't it? It could just be our constant consumption to try and escape. It could be in the way that we view sex or our sexual identity, how we use them very quickly, you can see, it builds up, right? And when you live in a world of idolatry, it's alluring. Idolatry is the place where people go to receive comfort and control and it shapes their identity and meaning. It shapes their purpose. And in a pluralistic and individualistic society like ours, lots of different options, but I get to choose, there have been many different idols built, right? But this strange radical individualism quickly shifts to collectivism, doesn't it? It starts to create pressure where it's like, but if you don't conform to the way that we think it should be, the power of the crowd starts to force down upon us and we start to feel the pressure. There is pressure and it can be a problem that ends up heating up just like it did for our three friends. See, when the towers of the powerful are threatened, it gets hot and that's what happens here. That's why they become such a wonderful example for us because we're not so far removed from this situation. How God's people stand when pressured, when they're wooed and allured with the subtle seduction of the towers and the pressure of the crowd, we see it right here. Now, so far it's worked out pretty well for Daniel and his three mates. They're sitting pretty. They're in a good position. But often when you get promotion and position, what comes from within? Jealousy and opposition. And that seems to be what happened here. If you have a look at verse 8, they were quietly going about their way. But what happens in verse 8? At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. Uh-oh, we know, we know our boys are Jews. And so verse 9, they said to King Nebuchadnezzar, may the king live forever, and you think suck-ups, and then they go on, your majesty has issued a decree that everyone, and they re- remind him exactly of what it is. Everyone should be bowing down. But we've noticed verse 12. There are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. See what they're going with this. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. Your majesty, remember, you are the great one. They never serve your gods, nor worship the image of gold you have set up. How do you reckon a king like Nebuchadnezzar will react? We've seen how volatile this bloke is. Well, here comes the fire. Here comes the rage, verse 13. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Did you notice how quietly they were going about their way though? And then the pressure came. It seems that they would almost just have got away with it if it wasn't for these astrologers, for the advisors getting jealous and putting the pressure. They were quietly, disruptively being disobedient, really being obedient to the way of life that they thought was right. But then the heat, it rose. It's going to be the same for us. Even if we quietly, and as I'm suggesting, disruptively with our practices of following the true God, live it out, 
pressure will arise. There is an increasing pressure to conform and this is a problem for them. Because now it's not just the pressure of the tower and the crowd, but now the power of the fire. Because what, what Nebuchadnezzar does is he sets up this private little ceremony for just them. Gets it all ready. This is a personal thing for Neb now. You can see that he's confronted. He holds the power and this is an affront to his preponderance, isn't it, Viv? And so for that reason, his preponderance has been confronted. What's he going to do? Verse 15, let's have a look. Verse 15, he says to them, what are you go- I give you a chance. Now, when you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, you hear it all and all kinds of music. If you're ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. And here's the kicker. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Bow down for what God can save you. It's a bit of a similar challenge or question of our God that's implicit within this text as to what happened in chapter 2 verse 11, right? No God can reveal these sorts of mysteries. What God? No God is the answer it's meant to be here, can rescue you from my hand. Like have a look how blazing that furnace is and in a moment it's going to get seven times hotter. You shall have no other God but me, Nebuchadnezzar is saying. It's about to get hot for the three friends and they are about to become an example for all of us of how God's people stand when pressure. Because listen to this, verse 17 and 18. King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter, they say. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. Powerful. But even if he does not, wow, imagine that. Even to be, have that confidence, even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. That is the stance of the faithful, right? Death is preferable to denial for these people. Now, they knew that their God would deliver them. They knew that he had the power. Verse 17 says that he will. But even if he wasn't going to, what do they say? We won't deny him. This is where our true tower is tested, right? In times like that, in the fire. And Daniel 3 will point to this wonderful, and we'll unpack it in a moment, picture of salvation. Salvation from death itself. But they didn't necessarily know that there was potentially even a resurrection to come. Now, this points towards that. Daniel 12, will unpack that a little bit more. But their faith is incredible here. It is deep. We can have that too. And this is a sort of faith that the persecuted church throughout the years has had, right? Now, there's no time in this instance for, for them to be stripped. They are just bound and prepared to be chucked into the fire. So angry is Nebuchadnezzar that he says, make that thing seven times hotter. Let's turn the heat up. The trial of the fire. Now this picture, the furnace, is really what exile is like. And for the people who first would have received this letter, this this book and and read it, in the context that they were in, they would have found themselves under a rule just like Babylon's, where there was the pressure to bow down, to conform for the comfort and for the control, just to keep going. It was fiery. It was something that like, when you read 1 Peter, for example, it seems these people are also living in a similar context. There was these fiery trials. He, he says in verses 6 to 7 in 1 Peter, For a little while, 
you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. James has a similar thing where he says, fire is going to come, testing times, but they will produce growth. And later on in chapter 4 of 1 Peter, he says, don't be surprised that this happens. Trials will come and it's in them, not from them, that we actually see our faith grow, right? See, their deep trust is forged in the furnace and that happens consistently throughout Scripture, that there is a deepening experience of God's being with His people as they consistently live within the furnace. See, we may be tempted I'm often tempted to find ways to not get burnt. Social death doesn't seem so worth it at times, does it? Death to self, the security of stuff and success and the social connections and the whatever it is, doesn't seem worth it for denial. But watch, if that's how your life goes, watch as the sparks start to spread, as the fire grows and it's turned up seven times hotter. Watch as the allure of gold shines brighter and brighter and very soon your faith hasn't just been tested, it's been torn off. We may be tempted even in our Christian circles to create a Christian idolatry of conformity, a Jesus of our own making that we have fashioned and that's awful, not awesome. He becomes passive, not powerful, wistful, not wise. A Jesus that is conformed to our selfish desires or cultural mores. And what happens with a Jesus like that? It melts. We don't want that. We do not want a God of our own creating because a God of our own creating doesn't save anyone. See, what saves these three? We haven't got there yet, but what is it? You, you, you probably know if you know the story. What saves them? It isn't their faith. It's not their courage. It's not their wisdom or their willingness. It's not their strength. It's their God. It's their God who saves, the triumphant God. That's where they got their confidence and comfort. That's where they knew that they didn't need the control because He was the one who had it. It's God who rescues in and through the flames. Let's read, let's have a look. Verses 24 to 26, what happens? It's incredible what happens here because Nebuchadnezzar looks on and sees, weren't there three men that were tied up and thrown into the fire? They replied, certainly, Your Majesty. But look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. He calls them and tells them to come out, and they come out. What God will be able to rescue you from my hand? The answer, our God. And it's so very clear that this is what's so very clear in this passage. Because back in verse 22, Nebuchadnezzar sends these guards up to chuck the, these four men, three men into the flames. And what happens to them? They are overwhelmed and they die even before getting to the flames. Loyalty to a powerless king, to a powerless God, will only end up getting you burnt. This has nothing to do with the strength of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Great example of faith, absolutely. But it has nothing even to do with their obedience. It has all to do with the power of their God. A God who came to them and rescued because there was another in the fire. Now, that person in the fire, there's been debate and talk. Was it Jesus, a pre-incarnate Jesus? Was it just an angel? Again, we can't exactly say, and it doesn't really matter. What is the point? God was with them. God rescues. God saves. Nebuchadnezzar looked, 
And there's a picture there of this furnace where he was able to see in. And some suggest that this furnace was actually the one that the golden tower itself was forged in. Now, that may or may not be true. But whether it is, what happens to created things when they're thrown into the fire? What should have happened to them? They should have burnt up. And it's a picture too of what happens to anything created when it's chucked into the fire. When those gods, those towers, when the ones that we constantly feel like we should turn to, the ones that we've manipulated and managed, the worldly matters and desires of our hearts, when we believe in them and they come to the time of testing, they constantly melt, don't they? And they leave people, both those in the church and outside the church, most certainly desperate, distraught, in a dire situation, because one day they will melt. They don't live up to the allure. And what about when it comes to death? What God will be able to rescue? This triumphant God. Because what sort of rescue was it? Verse 27? Complete, right? What did it say, verse 27? I love this part too. Cassie's already pointed it out. They pulled them out and they saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched and there was no smell of fire on them. Throw this faith into the fire and it won't melt. That's what the persecuted church clings to, right? This is how they go on. That's how the pressured church continues to obey God rather than man. That's how the persevering church resists the allure. That's what we do, right? And not all have been and will be rescued from physical death. There has been martyrs. But this is the picture of what happens with ultimate death, that separation from God. What sort of salvation is ours? When we come and we have that and remind ourselves of that, we remember that it is complete. Complete. Because three faithful men, though fallen, were saved, not because of themselves, but they point towards the faithful and perfect man who went through our fire, our death. Because what God will be able to rescue from his own just-filled hand, the Father's holy wrath, what God will be able to rescue those who willfully, we know we do it, disobey his rightful reign and rule and have other gods, what God will be able to rescue? Our God. That's why we keep reminding ourselves of this, reminding ourselves of what Hebrews 10.10 says. We have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all, that God made him who had no sin to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of complete righteousness of God. See, so when God looks at us, when God looks at you, he sees perfect because of Jesus. So no fire can harm, not a hair singed or clothes scorched, not even the smell of fire. That is, there's no sight or smell of the death that our sins deserve because Jesus took it. He has the power, he showed the will in Christ. Now, Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that this God has power and so bows down. But again, not to just this God. These guys are allowed to worship and live seemingly within this world. We'll see how that goes on in the next couple of weeks. But where else would we turn? What else would we bow down to except for the image of the invisible God, that is Jesus in the way that he's revealed himself? We need to keep reclaiming the right sort of awe and allure, right? The right sort of wonder, not at towers and gold or fire, but at the awesome power of our God. Bow before him in awe-filled wonder and praise. Tear down the other towers in your life. Go and find them, seek them out, search them out. Stand within the pressure that our community is going to put upon us at times. 
because there is actually nothing more confronting, but also, and most certainly comforting, than the Christian message that life is about more than me. What God will be able to rescue? Well, this God. So please stand faithfully trusting in Jesus. In a moment, we're going to share in communion to remember that. But now, we're going to have a song that hopefully helps us to reflect upon these wonderful words and prepare us for communion together. And if you don't have anything to eat or drink, race off, grab something now, so we can share together as those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. I'll be back in a moment. <laughs>